0: That, the music is so beautiful, it almost doesn't leave any, anything to say about it. I mean, it's just just gorgeous. Well, t- tonight we're going to talk about prayer. Uh, now, up until now, when I've talked to you, I have uh, uh, pretty much worked from a tight outline and a tight, tight argument so you could... Naturally, go from one point to the next, but it's going to be kind of different tonight in the sense that it's going to be all over the place. And I, I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm just explaining it. That uh, that uh, the material we have left from the um, the monks of the fourth, fifth, and sixth century tend to be like that too. And you know, after spending a lot of time with them, you, you can't really. You know, expect a nice, neat outline from. So, don't try to make an outline, okay? If you're if you're going to take notes, uh, okay. Prayer. This is uh, prayer is is a hard topic and an easy topic. Uh, It's a hard topic in the sense that so many people are intimidated by the idea of it. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many people I have had come up to me over the years and say, you know I've been praying all my life but I'm pretty sure I'm doing it wrong that 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 is just a heartbreaking statement. you know you know you really can't do it wrong. You, there are so many different ways to to pray. it isn't any even funny. I think if you have to have, If I have to have one way to describe prayer, I would say that prayer is a shared life with God. Prayer is a shared life with God, and there are lots of ways to share your life with God. That's the first thing I'd say about it. Uh, The folks in the ancient church, and not just uh, uh, Christians, uh, but but pagans also, there was a, an understanding that reality is formed in such a way that everything is moving toward God. Dorotheus, I, I told you all, I think I told you on Saturday, I can't remember when I said what, that about uh, Dorotheus is uh, describing uh, reality as a circle with God in the center and uh Lines connecting the outside of the circle to the point in the middle, and that each line represents a human life. Did I say that on Saturday? Is, well, at least you're not saying no. You never said that at all. You know. Whew. At any rate, there there was a conviction that that God at the center of all things, and of course. This is metaphorical because whenever we talk about God, we're talking metaphorically, right? But that, but that just that that God's own self pulls all things into being. Uh, If this is it, it, it's the movement toward God that makes an oak tree, an acorn turn into an oak tree, you know, or a puppy turn into a dog, or a a baby uh, turn into an adult. Human beings, uh, everything in life that moves in, in, moves into that process of life, is actually being drawn to God by God. I, I, just, I love that. I don't know about you all, but I, I love that myself, I, and I do believe that. And I believe that about about us. You know, think about the way. Uh, Flowers, I think of particularly of sunflowers because they're so big, but uh the way sunflowers follow the sun, you know, and, and turn toward the sun during during the day. You know, this is us. We're made like that. We do that too, even if we don't know that's what we're doing. That is in fact what we're doing. So I believe and you can uh disagree with me violently, or not so violently, if you would like to, I believe that all things pray. All people pray, even when they don't think they are. I think that we are all connected to God in such a way that we all pray. And i I give you some examples uh, where uh, you might not think of it as prayer, but but I really do. Uh, we and the first hymn we had this morning, uh, this evening. What time of day is it? It's, it's kind of dark out, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Rachel weeping for her children. You know, uh, we got that in such a a strong image because it's so much what's happening all over the world right now is is mothers and children who are separated from each other and the the children are dying in war and you know it's children are starving to death and I, I just think of the heartbreak of all those parents not to mention the children but certainly the parents and i think that cry of the heart that that human beings cry when they lose their children, is itself a prayer, whether they think it is in those terms, or not. That cry has a has a listener, and the listener is God. I, I remember when I was about eighteen years old. I remember it was my first year in college, and I can distinctly remember walking around with this this feeling of longing for something, and I didn't even know what it was for, and I. I still don't even know what it was for. I think it was probably a longing for God, but it wasn't clear in my head. I certainly didn't think of it in those terms, in those in those days. Anybody else ever experience anything like that? Well, maybe I was just a crazy kid, so you can just forget I said that one. Uh, one thing I am convinced is always a prayer, it, uh, even for people who say they don't believe in God is gratitude. You know, if you are experiencing gratitude, if you're experiencing gratitude, you're praying. Gratitude's got an object, doesn't it? I mean, it's directed somewhere. Don't you think? I mean, gratitude is is one of the one of the central things that human beings feel and it's just completely mysterious to me, but it always does seem to be directed at a particular place. And there's something about gratitude, experiencing, letting ourselves feel gratitude, encouraging that in ourselves, that that opens our spirit. You know, gratitude gives us something. I think it's part of that shared life that we have with God the back-and-forth between us and God. I don't care whether we, you, you, you use the word God in that or not. It's still prayer, and, and even if somebody says, well, I don't believe in God, I, I, you know, it's insulting to say somebody, well, you say you, you don't believe in God, but I really know you do. Now, Don't ever say that to somebody. I mean, that's that's really insulting. You know, that's like saying, I know you better than you know you, you know. Uh, But an an actual fact, an awful lot of people who say they don't believe in God, maybe even most people who say they don't believe in God, if they described their God that they don't believe in, I wouldn't believe in that God either. You know, but that doesn't mean that they're not living a life Sharing a life with God, even if they don't describe it in those terms. Does that make sense? So it's important to me um, to start out by saying that everybody prays. We all pray. You know, we all pray. The flowers pray. The animals pray. We can't not pray. That's the way we're made. We're made to be in conversation with God all the time i really do believe that now that being so that really is the grounds for me saying how can you pray wrong you, you know it's what we do that's like saying you're breathing wrong <laughs> you know I guess having asthma myself I, I realize that there are times when we don't breathe as well as others but our most natural expression of life is, is, our, is prayer. Uh, that's, I, I keep thinking about this, uh, and it seems to me really important. Uh, so the first thing I would want to say, in with what I'm saying, talking about prayer tonight, is to recognize even if you think you're not doing it, you are doing it. Uh, this prayer is not something as a topic to be afraid of or say oh that's for holy people or that's for disciplined people or that's for people you know that's what we do we breathe we eat we sleep we have babies we pray we're born and we die, and it's just part of it all. It's and it's a kind of a foundation. I'm too close to the mic, aren't I, or something? Are you getting a sort of a puff of there? Yeah. Pull it down two inches. Okay. See now we'll see if, if we if we get any more of that. Okay. So that's the first thing I want to say about um, about prayer that. I hope you can go home and think about that. And and I I would like to be able to talk to you later, but I I won't be able to since I don't live here and all. But uh, 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 the next thing I want to say about prayer is that nobody prays alone. Nobody prays alone. We all pray as part of the body of Christ. Now, again, this is one of those things you don't say to somebody who does not identify as Christian for one reason or another. You know, you pray and, and you pray as part of the body of Christ, don't say it. You'll be sorry. <laughs> and if you just have to say it, don't say who you heard say it in the first place. Okay? <laughs> Th- thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank uh, you. There, uh, the, the kind of spirituality, which was a word we didn't use when I was growing up at all, that was a Catholic word, um, uh, the kind of spirituality I grew up with was really, uh, uh, it, uh, I, I mentioned already that my father was really anti-religious, and uh, my mother was Southern Baptist, and that, didn't, that combination did not encourage conversation on religion in the home, you know, which was very fortunate that it didn't. Uh, But but the other part of that was there was a strong sense in my mother's family, and I think in the culture at that time, that it really wasn't polite to talk about religion. You know, I I think my mother never did get over the, the shame and embarrassment of having a daughter who taught in a seminary. You know, I mean, of all the things, you know, this is, it was like running around in the streets naked all day long every day, you know. Uh, so, you know if, if you, you know, if you had to talk about sex at home, you know, at the dinner table, say, if they're just, you just couldn't help, you just had to, you know, well then, all right, go ahead, do it, get it over with. Don't talk about religion. I don't care how bad the situation is. You know, this this is just too horrible for unspeakable for words. Uh, now that way of looking at religion does not uh, exactly encourage a person to think in terms of uh, a communal life together. Uh, our prayer is a communal activity. Uh, no, that's that's private. You know, you do that with the door shut and. Uh, Um, But the fact is, none of us pray alone ever. Another way to say that is all of us are supported by each other's prayers all the time. I I grew up as a really, really solitary child, um, extremely lonely and extremely convinced that there was nobody else like me in the world, Uh, and just, just... you know just tore my heart all the time my loneliness did and for me to hear and to realize that none of us pray alone is balm to my heart you know when i pray your prayers sustain me if i can't pray your prayers still sustain me now, i i was worked with the National Council of Churches for, for many years while I was teaching at, at Candler. And I knew a man through, in, through, the, through Faith and Order National Council who uh, taught at a very, very conservative Calvinist school in Michigan. And even though probably we probably didn't theologically agree on very much of anything, he was a wonderful person and I, I valued him a whole lot. He was a really old man when I knew him, maybe 70. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's amazing he would even get to the meetings, you know. Uh, anyway, when uh back when my daughter was a a a teenager, uh she was not an easy daughter to raise, as many daughters and sons aren't, and she caused me and her and Richard uh, much, much grief and much worry and anxiety. And uh, one time I went to the meeting, to a meeting, they were in New York, and, uh, and I got there early, which I tend to do when I go places. It's not a virtue when you can't help it, you know. Uh, Anyway, I got there early, and there was one other person there, and that was my friend Donald. And uh, he said, oh, how are you, Roberta? So I said, I'm terrible, you know. And he said, what's the matter? And and I told him, you know, it was just, I just didn't think I could stand it, and I wasn't even... I wasn't even sure about my faith. I was hurting too much to even be thinking in those terms. Well, he, he said, well, Roberta, let me tell you a story, and I will share his story because it's been really important to me over the years. He told me that when he and his wife had been young, they had wanted children really, really badly. And no matter what they did, they couldn't get pregnant, couldn't get pregnant didn't know why, but it just didn't happen. And then when they'd been married several, many years, I don't know, maybe as long as 20, I'm not sure, uh, his wife got pregnant and they had a baby. And this was a wonderful thing. This, the son was named after his father. He was a, a junior and they were just so happy. But from the very beginning, this child could not stand to be touched. The baby would did not want to be picked up or held when it was taken care of. The, the baby, the, the, the little ba- baby boy would not let his mother hold him just to feed him. He would just scream, and just go rigid. I, 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 su- I suppose they would maybe say, right, they'd say now that it was, Kind of a kind of autism, I'm not sure. But what they were told at the time was that it was, the child had been born from, with uh, schizophrenia. I, 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 I don't know, whatever it was, this child was born with really big problems. Well, they loved their child very much in spite of all of this. And they, uh, they uh, got him up through elementary school and high school, and he learned to read, um, but he never, Uh, he was never like other children. It was obvious he was going to have a a horrible time of it when he finally was an adult. But when he was about 18, he decided that he just had to live by himself. He wanted to be like other boys, and he wanted to live by himself. So with great reluctance, um, his parents found him a garage apartment that that was close to their house so that they could go in take food to him every day and and do do his laundry for him and you know take care of his basic needs and and be available you know when he was when they were needed and this worked for maybe six months and it seemed to be going well the boy seemed to be as happy as he was able to be and one morning uh, Donald went over to bring breakfast and uh, his son had shot himself and killed himself. And he didn't leave a suicide note, but what he did leave was a stack of magazines that had articles about schizophrenia in them and that he'd underlined passages that said things like, schizophrenia is incurable. Well, now they have all sorts of things that are are able to to help uh, schizophrenics. Uh, so that a lot of people can can live good lives with it. But there wasn't that sort of medication in those days. And Donald and his wife were just absolutely devastated, as you can imagine. It doesn't take much imagination to think of this. And he said, Roberta, I, what I want to tell you is, when I was at the funeral, all of my friends kept saying, now, Donald, your faith will get you through this. And he said, I want you to know it was not my faith that got me through that. It was the faith of my friends. Uh, this is a really important story about prayer. We are supported in the prayers of those with whom we share our lives in the body of Christ. Does that make sense? Can you understand that? Uh, I've thought so often over the years of uh, uh, the story that Donald told me, and it's been a great help to me lots and lots of times. And I I I told you all also a lot about Dorotheus of Gaza, who I always think of as the sweetest first uh, uh, church father of the sixth century. Uh, Dorotheus of Gaza, his name is, um, which is a boy's name, not a girl's name. And uh, poor Dorotheus, who was the head of his monasteries, kept preaching to his monks all the time that they just had to quit fighting with each other. And it, it apparently became really nasty in the monasteries. Uh, which is not surprising because people were living on top of everybody else, but also um, communities have a ethos that, from different different communities, have different a different ethos. Uh, you know, if you've been in one Methodist church, it'll be wonderful. You're happy to be there. Um, you know, people are uplifted and will uplift you. Then you go to a Methodist church you know, six blocks away the next Sunday and they're sitting there, you know, you're sitting in my pew. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and, uh, and and the whole church will somehow be infected with that. You know, it's hardly ever just one person. It's like that. Uh, so I think that's probably what poor old Dorotheus was, was up, up against. But what he says at the end of one of his homilies that we have that still survives. he's speaking to them and he says, what's the matter with you? Don't you know you should, be, you should be praying by the prayers of my brother, save me? By the prayers of my brother, save me. Now, this is an important saying to me because remembering that they couldn't stand each other and they were still told pray by the prayers of my brother save me so what that what that tells me and what i meditate on sometimes is the fact that not only am i supported by the prayers of other people heck i'm supported by the prayers of people i can't even stand <laughs> you know that, that's kind of embarrassing you know uh, but but it's it's also really important uh, that we are connected together in the body of Christ in in one in one body and we do support each other. Well, and that we're talking Dorotheus was talking to the monks who were sitting in front of him. Uh and so I, I read them and I think, okay, they're not sitting in front of me. This this was Let's see, sixth century. How long? I mean, that's a long time ago, uh, 1500 years ago or so. Uh, but he still. There's something about prayer that that is not bound by time. Uh, I'm, this sounds really. This sounds really sort of crazy, but I'll say, heck, I've been here long enough. Y'all can just deal with it the best you can. You know, uh, it's as though no prayer is ever lost. It it stays and keeps. It continues in the universe forever, and and it's like free of time almost. Okay, go ahead, say it. (laughs) She's crazy as a (laughs) bat. Okay, Uh, but. The thing is, if you really think about that, there was, there's always been a conviction that, that God is somehow, uh, that, that time is held in God, that God is not bound by time in the same way that, that created beings are, namely us. Uh, and in the communion of the saints, the communion of the saints is not bound by time. either. Do you all believe in the communion of the saints? Uh okay, I, should I, I wonder if I should ask for hands? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, you know if it, people don't say the Apostles' Creed anymore, do they? Do you do? You do? Sure. Yeah. Well, if you do, you know you say you believe in the communion of the saints. Uh, so, do you just shut your mouth when you get to that part? <laughs> 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 or, or uh, do you say? Um, What the heck is that? You know, uh, I do believe in the communion of the saints, uh, and I think it's because of um, the way I've spent my life in the presence of these 4th, 5th, 6th century people. Julian of Norwich in in the 14th century, who was one of my great teachers, and somehow they don't feel they're not dead to me, they're still, you can have a conversation with them. You can pray with them. You can ask them to, to pray for you. Now, that's, those are the people I've spent my life with, but I've spent my life with other people too, like my great-grandmother, and, and uh, my mother died four years ago. And my mother is not completely dead. You know, mother is still, is, is still very real. Uh, anybody have that experience? You know, that um, that somehow that there is a realm beyond the realm of the everyday, or it's not beyond it. It's more like it's on top of it, or undergirding it, or all interspersed with it. But uh, which, in fact, is the communion of the saints. Where in fact, we all in fact um, live together within uh, within Christ, the body of Christ well, I probably shouldn 't say anything else about that because um, you might get up and leave and and uh, and, and I really don 't want you to uh, but i i 'll tell you one more story that i 'll probably be sorry I tell you, but i 'm going to tell you anyway um, Uh, For a long time, every summer, I was invited to uh, a place in Minnesota, Collegeville, Minnesota, to uh, the Ecumenical Institute there, which is connected with St. John's University. And they would have consultations every summer, and they would last for a week and would be very, very intensive. Um, There was special housing for the people who who came, uh, apartments, little apartments with the uh, patios out back. Uh, and uh, they were set up, usually about 15 people were invited. And, and we would be from all different um, Christian backgrounds, uh, all different Protestant denominations, uh, occasionally Catholic denominations, and then occasionally Orthodox there would be an orthodox person or two. Well, uh, one year, um, uh, George Stephanopoulos, you know who he is? Well, his father was an archbishop in New York City. and His name was Father Bob Stephanopoulos. And uh, he somehow or other got invited one year. Uh, well, the way these, Things were conducted. We were given a question in advance to think about, and when we got there, we were asked to introduce ourselves. But in terms of the question we'd be been asked, to talk about our life in terms of that question. I remember one year the, the question was, "What is the content of Christian hope?" You know, that would be that that kind of that kind of question. Well, but part of what we would be asked to do on the first day is now, everybody remember, you're speaking for yourself. You're not speaking for your denomination. You're not an official person. You're speaking for for yourself. Uh, so far, so good. Uh, this always, you know, it was great. You really get to know people. Well, a Bob Stephanopoulos was Greek, and he... Uh, the, the, the orthodox are not so good on women as uh, uh, having authority in the church. Uh, I'm softening this, you know, as, <laughs> as best as I can. And uh, about half the people there were women, you know. Uh, so we went around the room and, and I could feel, he was sitting next to me, I could feel his temperature going up, you know. And, and, and he, you know steam started coming out as you know all that and uh, and I started feeling kind of scared and um, and then it got to be his turn and immediately he he started talking about how uh, um, first of all, the women didn't really belong there anyway uh, but that uh, but that everybody should know that he didn't have any private opinions about, he he had no faith that was not the explicit faith of of the Greek Orthodox Church. He believed exactly what they believed and what they taught, and he had no private belief beyond that. Well, people were kind of flabbergasted, to tell you you the truth. You know, most of us had been together for a few years having these conversations. And, you know, we all liked each other and trusted each other and were pretty vulnerable with each other. Well, there was a, a woman who, uh, who had grown up Jewish and became a uh, uh, Presbyterian, and she was sitting on his other side. And uh, she was teaching in an Ivy League uh, seminary, and... Uh, she did not take this sitting down, so to speak, and so immediately this a, a war broke out, you know and it, oh, it was just horrible, it was just horrible. Um, and I, I, you could look around and you could see that everybody was thinking, "I wonder if I could change my ticket and go home tonight." <laughs> you know and uh, and then it was lunchtime. I mean, this is the first thing that happened, you understand, the first thing. For, so um, uh, we always went off and had lunch together, and it was, it was great. I, I've told you how I feel about Dairy Queen, too, some of you who were here on Saturday know how I feel about Dairy Queen. And I'll say that one of the great things about that place is it had a soft serve, do-it-yourself ice cream. Uh, so I always looked forward to this and but um, nobody wanted to sit with anybody nobody said let's go have lunch and talk and talk or anything you know i mean it just everybody's spirit was just really wounded by by this so i decided that i was not even gonna go eat there i'd scrounge around see if i could find a snack i brought or something i went back to the uh, to the little apartment and uh, the, the apartments were all lined up like condos in, in front of a, a, a beautiful lagoon that often had loons in it. You could hear them calling at night. It was it was really gorgeous. So I thought, I'm, I'm gonna go out and sit on the patio and, and then I'll feel better. So I go out the back door and guess who I see in the next, uh, on the next patio, right? You know, maybe as far as hmm. Here from her to the roses, you know, and I say, "Oh no, I'm going back in." And the my teachers from the early church are saying, "Roberta, you can't go in. It's not an option. You know, remember what Jesus said about." loving God and loving your neighbor, and remember Dorotheus' circle, you've you got to go over and talk to him. And I said, in my most pious tone of voice, why don't you just shut up and leave me alone? <laughs> but but then I, I did go over uh, with great reluctance. I could hear my heart pounding in my ears as well as in my chest. and. He obviously was having second thoughts of one sort or another, because uh, I went and said, "Oh, hi, how are you?" You know, as, as if I didn't know. And uh, he said, "Oh, um, let's see, you're you're Roberta Bondi, right? You you teach uh, the early church at your seminary, right?" Uh, now the whole early church is what the Orthodox churches regard as church history. You know, they're. That's it, and it's theirs, you know. So, um, so I didn't know what was gonna come next after he said, you teach that. And then he said, Protestants want to learn about that? And I said, um, well, yes, it's, it's so important and it's so life-giving, and it's been so important in my own life, I want to share it with my students. And and he said, well, do people sign up for your classes? And I said, yeah, they're always filled up by 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, which is true. So, um, then I hear this thing come out of my mouth. You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit messes with us more than is really good for us in some ways. But... uh, I, I hear this, you know, he's been friendly, he's making an effort, I'm making an effort, everything's good, you know, I hear it come out of my mouth. The one thing I don't like about the early church, though, is that I know these teachers who've been so important to me wouldn't even talk to me because I'm a woman. <laughs> oh, Roberta. <laughs> <laughs> well, he immediately answers me, and he said, then you must pray for their conversion. <laughs> you must pray for their conversion. And of course he meant, in the communion of the saints. Well, in actual fact, that was a gift to me that was beyond whatever went on during that week at the Ecumenical Institute, because this is something that had been heavy on my heart for years and years. How can you have your the teachers who have... Given you the things that have allowed you to live and, and be happy and feel valuable as a human being, have these very same teachers be the people you know, if you met them face to face, they wouldn't talk to you, you know. So, and that if you happen to be a church historian of the female persuasion, um, it's hard to find women in church history, you know. We won't get off on that, or we'll all be rolling on the floor in despair. But but the idea that of course I can pray for them uh, was a a wonderful thought. And you know, Wesley, John Wesley, our founder, uh, he believed that after death we continue growing in love. You know, it's not, okay, now it's over. When my grandmother, uh, who uh, Roberta, di- was dying, uh, I remember my aunt Susie saying uh, something that was hard to hear, but because she meant it. My, I, I believe that my grandmother was bipolar. Now They didn't talk like that in those days. They would say she has periods when she's on her high horse. And being on her high horse meant she was manic, you know. So uh, anyway, my my mother and her uh, and my aunt Susie and my aunt Cass were all down at the hospital, staying down at the, the hospital the last week she was alive. And Aunt Susie said at one point, "Oh, I hope she, when she dies, she isn't on her high horse. She'll go straight to hell." <laughs> This idea that we continue to grow in love after we die, that we can, that we can pray for the conversion, in however sense you mean it, uh, people who have been important to us uh, after the this is, don't you think that's a kind of a revolutionary idea? You don't think it's a revolutionary idea? Oh, yeah. I mean, think, supposing you have a, a parent who's died and you haven't been able to resolve your issues with that parent. Think about the possibilities of this. You know. And that all of our prayer is, is contained in, in, the, in the body of Christ. Nobody prays alone. We're all supported in the prayers of each other, even the prayers of those who are, who are dead. Now I uh, don't know whether my grandmother was on her high horse when she died, but I'm quite certain she's not in hell. That I'm, I'm quite positive of. So anyway, that's another thing I wanted to to share with you because it seems awfully important. Uh, okay. Now these are just sort of now we're we're getting to some of the uh, 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 more um, random thoughts, but they're not really all that random, so I guess I probably shouldn't say that. It's like They always say don't apologize in advance for anything. So forget I said that. Uh, what I thought would be helpful, and you would want to know uh, before we got done, was how the monks actually prayed in the, in the early church that we've, we've been talking about. Because uh, we talked a lot about what they thought and how they acted, but we never talked about uh, their prayer. Well, I can tell you that there are many interesting and important things about it. Uh, one thing is if you had asked them, 4th, 5th, 6th century, what are you actually doing in your life? They would say, well, we pray. You know, that, was, that would be the way that they identified themselves as who they were, you know. Now, what, what was, what was the, the practice? I was going to say what well, was common, but it's more than common. It was the practice, uh, especially in Egypt, was uh, once you became a, a, a monk, you took up this life, and there were women. Uh, actually, there were more women than there were men, uh, but we don't have very much record of them because, after all, Let's face it, they were only women. Uh, But um, the practice of prayer was uh, such that the monks, when they became monks, the first thing it seems that they did was to memorize the whole Psalter, Uh, all 150 Psalms, including Psalm 119, which is a very long psalm. Uh, Their prayer practice, they didn't have, what developed into the liturgy of the hours uh, later on in, in the Western Church and in the Eastern Church too, uh, you know, where they had fixed times of prayers and everybody prayed at the same time. Uh, but their their practice was uh, such that Anthony, who is known as the given credit as being the first monk, he really wasn't, but the, he he was their first hero, uh, and he was. Uh, he he was thinking about this one day, and he was praying, and he said, um, in his prayer, he said to God, "How on earth am I going to ever be saved?" Now, there's a question: of What does it mean to be saved? What we've actually been talking about is just that over the last three days. But what he he was given a vision at that point. Uh, which he then followed for the rest of his life and this became the pattern of prayer for the monks in the desert. What he saw in his vision was an angel uh, looked exactly like a human being who would get up in the morning and pray. Uh, Everybody in that period prayed standing up, not sitting down or kneeling. The the, the, The practice of prayer was always standing and this was not just Christians and Jews, this was also pagans, this was just the way people prayed, with their arms stretched out. So he would, the monk would stand, recite psalms for a while, sit down and then work on his manual uh, uh, work, which would be maybe weaving baskets or, or making um, mats, or rope or sandals those were the, the things that they that they would do for their manual labor and then stand up again and pray and then after a little bit sit down and do a little more work and then stand up and pray again do a little more work now the point of the story was um, the simplicity of this there was nothing noble in it you know there was nothing striking in it there was no great ascetic feats in it. It was ordinary. And this is what Anthony said, was told, when you pray, this is the way you do it. As part of your life. It's the foundation of your life, but don't make a big deal out of it. Now, Not all the monks around the Eastern and Western Empire uh, looked at it that way, but that's the way they looked at it in Egypt, which was the uh, the, the great uh, center of monasticism uh, that the, the other ones kind of developed out of. Um, so they prayed standing up and they prayed uh, reciting the Psalms and, you know, reciting scripture. There's one saying by, oh dear, what time are we supposed to be quitting? <laughs> as soon as you're done. <laughs> well, uh, what can I say? Uh, okay, I'm going to figure out how I can take my next forty-five pages and and and, and boil it down a little bit. Uh, I think we'll we'll jump quite from right right from the monks. who You got the idea. They. They prayed by reciting the Psalms, which, by the way, they believed, uh, and, well, they didn't just believe it, it seems to be the truth, that when you look at the Bible, that the whole rest of the Bible is looks like um, the author of the books, or certainly God behind all that, the Holy Spirit, talking to us. But the psalm book is different in that it is the book that God has given us so that we would have words to pray to God. kind of a nice idea. And when Athanasius in the fourth century was thinking about this, he was a famous archbishop of um, Alexandria uh, and a great theologian. And um, he said that, that we need the words because... Uh, Half the time, we don't know what we're actually feeling. We don't know where we are. And if we're given the, the psalm to pray and we say those words, we can recognize, hey, I am mad, you know, or wow, I really am grieving, or, you know, or whatever. Uh, I'm doing the best I can and I'm not making any progress, you know. That, so, anyway, so that's, I, I'll, I'll leave it at that for you. Know, I'm afraid I could. Talk for a long time on that particular point um, praying the psalms but that's what, that was the basis for the, for the monastic uh, prayer in the desert was, was uh, reciting the psalms and reciting them not as though you aren't feeling them but reciting them as, as your prayer that you understand while you're saying and not just rattling off but as you are saying as your prayer uh, and if you think about it, what that was about is, um, and this is something that, that there are some nice sayings that refer to this, that as we pray in that particular way, we're actually being formed by the words we're saying. Uh, there's um, a, a saying connected with Abba Piman. Uh, he was asked one time, he was asked the question, and he was asked the question in Greek, only he didn't understand Greek. So he, uh, he, just, he just answered whatever he wanted to answer, which didn't in fact have anything at all to do with uh, the original question. But w- what he answered was, uh, um, if you hang a, a bottle of water upside down uh, above a stone so that it drips slowly, sooner or later, the water will wear away the stone. He says, in the same way, our hearts are hard and the words of Scripture are soft and they will wear away our hard hearts as well if we hear the words of Scripture often. Okay, so that's, that is a really important uh, point about how they saw what they were doing and what they were about. Uh, we talked a lot about their, their various uh, ways of understanding the passions and so forth, but we didn't talk about how really rooted in scripture they were. So you can say, okay, you can draw a line under that and say, okay, we, we finished with, with that now, okay? Um, oh, this is hard. What am I going to leave out? <laughs> if, if you're lucky, I'll leave out a lot. <laughs> okay, I think this is the, the last thing I want to talk about, and that is the fact that, you know, I said in the beginning that prayer is, is a shared life with God. Well, the thing I want to say at this point is, if you will remember, toward the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, um, I no longer call you servants, but call you friends. I call you friends. That not only are we sharing our life with God, but what we also want is friendship with God. We also want friendship with God. And that is a foundation to our our prayer. And I want to... um, i uh, just mention two or three characteristics of friendship that I think are important uh, when we're talking about a uh, prayer. Um, the first is that friends share their lives and their interests. What one friend wants, the one friend wants for his or her friend, what is most important to his or her friend. Uh, or to put it another way, We're we're accustomed to talk about God as our friend, but we're not accustomed to talking about us as God's friend. If we want to be a friend of God, uh, then we must cultivate in ourselves uh, a desire for the things that God wants, which things are compassion toward others, uh, gentleness, the well-being of other people, and so forth. And when we pray our intercessory prayers, it's always in that context. You know, intercessory prayer is not talking God into doing something God wouldn't otherwise do. But if we're holy enough and and we have enough faith, we can get God to do it. You know, this is not what it's about, is it? Uh, A lot of people think it is. Um, I've got somebody in my Sunday school class that that uh, I don't know why he comes to the Sunday school class, but he's quite convinced that, uh, that, that God let him down. He tried to, to bargain with God, and God didn't hold up what he thought of as his end of the bargain. Uh, so he knows that, you know, there's no such thing as God. But he still comes to Sunday school. <laughs> you know, uh, so anyway, so the first thing is friends want the same things. So when we pray, we, we, join, we want to join our desires to God's desires for the well-being of God's world and for the, the people in it and for the world itself. Uh, the next thing is that friends speak their mind to each other. Uh, there are too many people who think you have to watch what you say to God, you know, because... Talking to, well, first of all, they, they believe God is kind of dangerous, but uh, uh, after that, they think you know they have to be pious. Well, um, and use pious language to talk to God, and so so it doesn't seem possible to them that they would say, um, "My child just drowned in the swimming pool. How could you let this happen?" this is your child and my heart is broken. You know, they wouldn't say that. That's it. Oh, that wouldn't be respectful. You know, if we can't say what we have in our hearts to the people that we love, our relationship will be finally lost. Depends on one heart open to the other, right? Yeah, I, really, I, I think that that's... Um, that does end more marriages than just about anything. And maybe more relationships between children and, and parents is that nobody says what they really feel, you know. And, and then the relationship is lost, you know, because there's no, no reality to it anymore. So that's something else about being friends with God. We have to say what is on our mind. And if it's not worthy, well, guess what? God can handle it. You know, whatever we have to say, God is almost for sure heard worse. You know? uh, so we say, "I know this isn't a worthy thing to think, but this is what I really do think, and I'm hurting. So you deal with it." You know, that's a good prayer. Um, <laughs> Friends acknowledge that they have responsibility for the well-being of each other. Okay, now we're, we are um, accustomed again to think that, well, God takes care of us. Now, I know I'm on dangerous ground, and I'm going to do it anyway because I believe it. But if we love God and God is, we want God for a friend, then we also have responsibilities for caring for God. And the things that God cares about. Uh, because friends need each other. Friends need each other. You say, well, God doesn't need anything. Well, you know, I'm not so sure that's true. I, I, what I want to do is, is finish up, and you can be grateful that I'm finishing up, by, uh, by telling you the story that you will find in the 11th chapter of John when you go home, if you should look for it, and the beginning of the 12th chapter. This is the story that is generally referred to as the raising of Lazarus, but I think of it as the story of Mary and Martha's friendship with Jesus. So I'm going to tell it to you and you can listen and see what you think. And I'm sticking to the script, you know, well, a little. Uh, So, uh, uh, Jesus and his disciples are on one side of the Jordan, and, uh, and they get a message from Mary and Martha, from Bethany. Uh, you Remember, Mary and Martha are the sisters of Lazarus, who is Jesus' friend. So they send this message, and they say, uh, Jesus, you need to know that your friend Lazarus is really sick, and you need to come. And Jesus, in an uncharacteristic way, uh, doesn't show up. I'm working on, you know, I'll get to it, but I'm I'm working now, you know. Uh, So I'll get to it in a day or two. Uh, Well, the next thing everybody knows, Jesus has gotten another letter from Mary and Martha and says, uh, your friend Lazarus is dead. Jesus says, now I'm in trouble. And uh, he said, okay, I've got to go to Bethany now. And his disciples say, no, no, you can't do that. You have to go through this dangerous part of Samaria and you, you just can't. And Jesus says, I'm going, you know. So he heads out and he gets almost to Bethany and he sees uh, um, Martha is uh, waiting for him in the road, probably sitting on a rock. Uh, probably she did not bring a folding chair, but I don't know that for sure. Anyway, there's there's Martha, and she sees him, and she comes up to him, and she says, in her most pious uh, tone of voice, where the hell have you been? <laughs> you know. and, and the most important thing about that is that Jesus does not answer her by saying, look, you know that I'm the son of God, how, you, how can you dare speak to me that way? <coughs> Jesus doesn't say that. He answers her, he listens to her, and he answers her, and he says, well, Martha, do you believe in the resurrection? And she says, everybody believes in the resurrection for heaven's sakes, what does that have to do with anything? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Do you understand that I am the resurrection and the life? And Jesus, yeah, I guess I do. Yeah, now that you mention it. So they walk on to Bethany, and they get to Bethany, and their house is full of guests there for, uh, you know, bringing casseroles and that sort of thing. And and they go in and... uh, and Mary is there, and she's sitting on a stool, and she looks at Jesus, and you know what she says Where the hell have you been? <laughs> you know, Jesus answers the best he can, and then he goes out to the garden and cries. You know, shortest verse in the Bible, if you had to ever memorize Bible verses as a child, the shortest ber- verse in the Bible Jesus wept. That was the context of Jesus weeping. And then Jesus raises Lazarus. And that looks like it's the end of the story, only it's not the end of the story as I understand it, because this event has happened pretty shortly before uh, the crucifixion. So, But Mary and Martha and Lazarus then have a party for Jesus and the disciples. Shortly after this event, and they're all um, there, and they're getting ready to eat, and uh, and Mary comes in. Now, this story actually shows up in 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 several of the gospels, and it's a different woman uh, each time. But in John, she's Mary, I believe, the sister of Martha. But she comes and she. Pours ointment on Jesus' feet and, and cries and then and then wipes it with her hair, dries his feet with her hair. And the disciples are, you know, offended. You know, how can she act like that? That's disgusting. You know, Judas says she should have spent that, sent that money and spent it on the poor. And, you know, they're all up in arms. And Jesus says, leave her alone she's preparing me for my for my death now the, the significance about that is that all through the Gospels all through the Gospels Jesus keeps trying to warn the disciples you know now you need to know that things aren't going to come out the way you think they are you, you know this is not going to end well um, the course that I've set upon I, I'm going to die. And they all answer, you know, oh, don't be so negative, Jesus. You're always so negative. You know? uh, now, Jesus knew that he, he was going to die. You didn't have to be the Son of God to know that. In Roman uh, Palestine, if he carried on like he was going to, it was inevitable that he was going to end up in trouble with the government and crucified. But the disciples will not hear this. They absolutely won't hear this. Now, think of how, these are the people that Jesus has spent his whole ministry with. He's tried to teach them as best he could, and they will not hear this one fact. They are leaving Jesus absolutely alone, interiorly. The loneliness that, that would have to go with that, it can't he can't get any comfort from his disciples because they're too busy telling him, don't feel like that, don't, don't, don't say that, don't say that. The people who did not abandon Jesus in that place were the women. And so when Mary pours this ointment on Jesus' feet and he says, she's getting ready, getting, you know, she's helping me prepare for my death, that, that must have felt like incredible comfort to Jesus. Jesus needed her. He needed her. And, and he wasn't just Jesus. He's Jesus, of course. He's the human being. But we Christians say he's also God in the human person in there. I think if there's any story that illustrates that God relates to us in such a way that God chooses to need us. It's the story. So the women were present at the crucifixion. Mary Magdalene went on Easter morning to, to prepare Jesus' body properly for a burial, which they couldn't do before because it was Sabbath. The women stayed with Jesus. And it's not just because it's wonderful to be a woman, because it has its good parts and its bad parts. But uh, but the women apparently could hear what Jesus was saying, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, and could respond to it. But and we know that they've already been able to, we've seen them expressing themselves to Jesus, Mary, and Martha at the beginning of the story, you know, when they're mad at him for not showing up on time. We don't see anybody else in the Gospels talk to Jesus that way. But the fact that they were able to speak their hearts to Jesus, I believe in the beginning of that story, we can assume that they always were able to speak their hearts to Jesus as friends. They could then be present to him when he needed them. They could hear his pain because they were accustomed to speak their own pain to Jesus. So this is a story about prayer, in other words, I think. It it tells us something profound about who God is and how we relate to God as friend of God, as beloved of God, where God is also our, our beloved. So I, that's not a bad place to to quit, so uh, we're going to quit there and uh, uh, uh you know when I um, come back tomorrow and I'll lecture again and then the next day after that, and then two more days after then we'll go through the rest of the lecture <laughs> um, But for tonight that will be all um, we'll do and I have to say that I have loved my time with you all and and you were just terrific and um Thank you very much for letting me be here with you.